This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, episode 8 of what should have been the fall 2017 season. I am Theta, with an 8, here talking about episode 8 of Land of the Lustrous. All I have to say is, well, that definitely just happened. The impact of this episode kind of depended on how our expectations were managed to this point. The Lunarians trying to steal away the gems has been a known threat since the first minutes of the show, yet so far it has been a series of near misses. Morganite and Gaucher are brought low but saved by Congo. Fos is attacked in the same episode, but Cinnabar will intervene. Daya looks to be in trouble, but is rescued by Bort. Phos is first eaten by Ventricosis, but then saved by Daya and Cinnabar, only to fall into the hands of the Lunarians just the same. Then she too is saved by the very person who set her up. Though Zirkon loses her head over the matter, the Lunarians who pursue Yellow Diamond come up short as well. And of course, the Amethyst Twins are all but on their way to the moon before Bort and Congo come to stop it. We thus have a pretty consistent pattern of threat to our gems that has amounted to nothing but stressful moments. Even with the body horror of them being broken apart, we have an expectation that they will always eventually be restored, until now. Thus, even though we have what could have been a triumphant moment, the first real fight of Fos taking down some Lunarians, we instead get the sharp contrast of losing our first character to throw cold water over the whole affair. We have arguably the highest high point so far, next to the lowest low, and the stakes seem elevated going forward. There is a lot left unanswered due to how our episode ends today, as there is no cliffhanger and no hint of what lies just over the horizon. It will thus be a shorter analysis overall, as we'll mostly just look at the events of this single installment. To start with goals, I brought up the tension between Congo's goals in these last two videos, um, that letting Fos stay in the fight seemed to run counter to his goal of keeping the gem safe. What remained to be determined was whether this was Congo choosing not to make a decision, or if it meant he thought Fos having a purpose was more important than gem safety. Or perhaps a third reason, which I'll get to in just a moment. The problem with believing it was the second case, that the purpose was more important, was that his past decisions to take her off the encyclopedia task uh, appeared to be due to the way she risked herself and put stress on the whole group when she went into the sea. He got angry at her and had a brief outburst which shattered her, which is similar to his reaction toward Morganite and Gaucher when they risked fighting the Lunarians to spare him the trouble. In both instances, the undue risk will break his normal emotional control. In the Encyclopedia case, he took away Fos's purpose without adding a replacement, so it appeared that protecting everyone was more vital, right? 
This also seemed like an important instance of the individual versus society tension, but putting Fos into the winter task with Antarcsite seems like something of a reversal. It's something I mused about last time. Does this mean that Congo actually wants Fos involved? Or was the attention called to his lack of punishment? Is that a sign that he was putting off a decision? Or that he was troubled or otherwise preoccupied in some way? Congo will say after Fos's arms are lost that it was all due to a lack of caution on his part. And at the very end, we'll also reiterate that the blame lies with him after Antarcticite is lost. Does that not seem something like regret? Or believing he made an error in judgment? The error here seems to be Fos's involvement, no? So is the only problem that he put off a decision? Or that he made the wrong decision to choose Fos over the community? Or is it the third reason that I already referred to? Last time I wondered if concern over how lonesome Antarcticite might be was part of what prompted Congo to have Fos join her. This time, Congo will stop Antarcticite from going back to look for Fos's arms, and rather than argue over Antarcticite's safety versus her perceived duty or whatever, Congo will simply gather her up and comfort her. He intuits that she needs companionship far more than she is willing to admit. So I wonder then if Congo's goal of finding everyone a purpose and his goal of protecting everyone should be said to compete with a third goal, the well-being of the gems as individuals. Certainly you could argue that finding the gems a purpose is attending to their well-being, and you could argue that protecting them is also attending to their well-being, but those are somewhat distant and hands-off goals uh, that incidentally result in better well-being. I'm thinking more in terms of Congo paying attention to their individual persons and their emotional needs, and perhaps altering the importance of the other goals in response. Just like in episode 6, we left off before getting a chance to see how Fos will react to this new turn of events. Thus, I don't know if her goals are shifting in the slightest. I don't even know if the loss of memories could affect them, so for now we will leave them untouched. There's still plenty to talk about for her in characterization. So in Conflicts, the new one from last time, the missing arms, is solved? Maybe? Again, we left off without knowing how Fos is internalizing these events, or even whether she will have problems with the new arms or not. She certainly shed a lot of tiny pieces of herself in pursuing the Lunarians at the end, so that hardly seems sustainable. There was also the difficulty of control that could be a problem going forward, or that was only a problem for the newness of the arms, uh, perhaps in the same way the legs were only temporarily an issue. Um, I'll revisit that when we get to characterization as well. The accompanying issue with the arms conflict is what memories Fos may have lost. Other than the location of the Cord Shore, and perhaps some memories of her own birth, it isn't clear what Fos might have forgotten. But like I thought last time, we are probably going to have to wait until spring returns and the other gems are around for this to be fully understood. I was at first uncertain whether it makes sense to add Antarcticite's disappearance to our conflicts list, but I have decided not to. Conflicts, just like goals, are supposed to be solvable or achievable elements in a story that drive the narrative. The two together are my particular way of breaking down plot into something more useful for our understanding. We don't add goals for every character, even though most characters can be assumed to be having goals of some kind. But rather, we only track the ones which seem like they could drive the part of the story that we will see. Likewise, we don't want to try to keep up with every conflict which can crop up, or the ones which simply form the background setting for a story. Instead, we try to guess which ones can be resolved as part of the narrative, 
is that will suggest a direction for the actions of our characters when they are not acting on one of their goals. To oversimplify, goals push, conflicts pull. Thus, the unfortunate loss of Antarcticite may not belong up here because the characters believe it to be unsolvable. We haven't yet had any examples or references to trying to get the gems back from the moon. They act as if the Lunarians pulling away with a gem is the end of the matter, and you should therefore do everything you can to prevent it getting to that point. So whether or not it is actually impossible to rescue the gems, the fact that they seem to believe as much means that it doesn't go up here because it won't influence their behavior in the future. In fact, while I spoke of the hibernation sequence as a kind of figurative death last time, the way gem society reacts to those taken away is effectively the same as if they had died in truth. This is the first time it's happened in the story's timeline, and at least for now, it seems prudent to treat it with finality. Lastly, the conflict of the Lunarians kidnapping gems has finally escalated into success on their part. However, conflicts are things we want to see resolved, while this is an intensifying of this conflict. It is safe to say that they will not become less aggressive or less creative going forward now that they have had a payoff. So I would expect this to continue affecting our narrative at least once more before this season is at an end. So for characterization, as mentioned earlier, we got clearer insight into what drives Antarcticite to this episode. I suggested last time that she might put herself out on Fos's behalf, as she seemed to have a soft spot beneath the hard front that she maintained. I suppose a gem who literally oscillates between being hard or soft, depending on context, should have been a clue all its own. Uh, we do see Antarcticite put herself through quite a lot this time due to the missing arm situation. Um, as Fos will say rather helplessly at the end, Antarcticite suffered for me. Though Kongo will acknowledge her thoughts, looking back through the episode, I think we can find that it wasn't for Fos's sake at all, or at least that Fos was secondary. Antarcticite's original response to the loss of arms was to dive into the water after them. Once she realizes that they are gone, presumably ground to dust just as she warned, she sinks to the ocean floor in defeat. When they present themselves to Congo with the news, Antarcticite will first assume the blame as though she is reporting something rather innocuous. And how Fos reacts mirrors my own reaction. If this is anyone's fault at all, it's Fos's, not hers. Congo, though, cannot hide his own shock. And when he drops his pencil and our Arcticite tries to continue, her real feelings start to come out. Shoulders hunch, head droops, sentences become hard for her to get out, and she starts to rush back to the ice flows to look some more. She nearly lost her arms as well, so there's no way she misunderstood the risk. Instead, she feels like she has failed, that she hasn't lived up to the trust that is placed within her. And the only thing that occurs to her is to try to undo that failure. Luckily, Kongo stops her. He assumes the blame, but even this is something she can't accept. She's never failed like this before, she's just not used to working in teams, and so on. She's so out of sorts that she doesn't resist being lifted and held by Kongo, even though she was mortified to be caught doing so before. The purpose of her being embarrassed last episode and Fos continuing to tweak her about it now becomes rather clear. It was so that we understood how upset and lost she is in this moment. Anyway, the part that is telling is that Fos tries to comfort her by downplaying the situation. Look, this isn't so bad, it's happened to me before, but Antarcticite will reject this attempt. Absolvement from Fos isn't what she cares about. She doesn't feel like she needs to make things up to Fos at all. This is even more clear in the next scene as they trek their way towards the cord shore. Fos will again fall behind and stumble into the snow. 
Antarcticite will lift her up, but as Phos goes to thank her, she will drop Phos rather unceremoniously. She'll say nothing, but will scowl at Phos throughout. There's no hint of ingratiating herself to Phos, there's no air of apology. The person Antarcticite failed, in her mind, was Congo, not Phos. Had Phos just stayed asleep this winter, Antarcticite would never have been in a position to let Congo down. While this is not open hostility towards Phos, I think resentment has overtaken the softening of last episode. She was opposed to teaming up with Phos, she let her guard down with Phos seemed earnest about wanting to try, and now this is what happens. There was probably some guilt in there as well, as we saw her bristle a bit after she accidentally broke Phos's arm, but I think her reaction wouldn't be this prickly if it had only been about a grieving Phos. When the Lunarians will unveil their new trickery this time and reel in Antarcticite's hand, the thing that sets her off isn't the loss of the hand, but the implied loss of her memories of Sensei. Considering Phos's example, it doesn't seem like the gems automatically know which memories are stored where, and if you forget them, then, well, you probably can't remember what you don't remember, right? So for Antarcticite to immediately assume that the missing hand means losing memories of Congo suggests that most of her memories are with Congo. Which makes perfect sense if it was always only her and Congo throughout the winter months. Antarcticite must have some overlap with the other gems to know the things that she assumed about Phos in the beginning, but perhaps too little to ever form bonds. Her business-as-usual demeanor that she tries to keep up most of the time is perhaps how she treats with the other gems. That would seem consistent to me, at least. Finally, the few thoughts Antarcticite has after being shot to pieces will point this direction as well. She'll try to hush Phos from calling out and revealing her presence. This seems like altruism at first, not wanting Phos to risk herself even if it means that she might be saved. She had already noticed during the earlier fight that the Lunarians didn't connect the Golden Blob to Phos's presence, so presumably she can just lay low. But although Antarcticite's last few thoughts are directed at Phos, they aren't necessarily about Phos. She wants her to keep from getting caught so that she can keep Congo company and fulfill the winter tasks in her place. Phos's well-being isn't the thing she cares the most about. Her own well-being isn't the thing she cares the most about. What she cares about is the role she plays in society, being Congo's reliable winter guardian and companion. That sense of duty seems to drive Antarcticite even to her last words, and as that duty was given to her by Congo, her affection and allegiance toward him is bound up entirely in fulfilling her assigned purpose. Her original disdain towards Phos due to her idleness will reinforce how important she considers such a charge. What I think makes this tragic is that Congo would not have had her choose this duty over herself. As we discussed in Goals, his actions in suspending the encyclopedia task and chastising Morganite and Gaucher point to a Congo who cares about more than the jobs the gems are assigned. In fact, losing his temper when they take these risks should illuminate his priorities entirely. But to pile on the tragedy here, it may be that Antarcticite has simply never had an opportunity to witness that side of him. The fact that their initial embrace is a yearly tradition implies that they just do it that once, and the whole rest of their shared time together is akin to the stiff formality that she will employ during their first moments. This paints the picture of an Antarcticite who has lived almost entirely isolated, with only Congo as anything like a social link. But because she has no other examples of how she could demonstrate this solitary connection, the only thing she knows to do is perfect execution of what is asked of her. 
There may even be some grim acceptance of her fate as fitting for one who has thus let Congo down. Presumably, she was already unconscious by the time that Congo made it to them, and so she won't even know that he did come for her at the last, or that Phos nearly spent herself trying to stop Antarcticite from being taken away. I thus find it an exemplary touch to have ended the episode as they do. It's the first time we've had a gem we know taken away in truth, and this is effectively like death for the gems thus caught. So to forego our normal credit sequence and hold on the container that usually keeps Antarcticites safe gives the final moments the air of a memorial. The long sequence last episode that introduced her, where we saw her crystallize with a certain visual splendor, now serves a secondary purpose. We fixed the square stone basin in our minds as associated with Antarcticite, so we now immediately connect it and its solitary lifelessness to what has happened to her. I rather wish I had the lyrics translated for this end piece, uh, but even without knowing their content, there is a mournful air to the whole thing. It builds nicely out of Congo staring at the point in the sky where Antarcticite was last seen while Fos searches his face in her troubled state. It may mean nothing, but I do want to point out that over the course of these end credits, night will pass and the next day will dawn. For something that is meant to capture the sense of loss, you would think that the scene would begin in daylight and end with darkness overtaking, yet we have the opposite. Is this some tenuous clue upon which we can hang some hope for Antarcticite? Or is the coming of the dawn analogous to the coming of spring, and the absence of Antarcticite getting back in the container thus meant to highlight that the normal springtime routine will not be carried out this time around, or perhaps ever again? Whatever is meant, holding on how Congo and Fos must feel in those final moments does a great job of drawing our empathy into the scene, I think. So, hats off. I want to speak just briefly about Congo this time around. He essentially has one scene with Antarcticite and Fos at the beginning, the strange interaction with the Lunarians, and then the short bit at the end when he comes too late to save Antarcticite. While he was taken aback by the loss of Fos's arms, he recovered quickly when Antarcticite's distress won out over her control. He will soothe her and try to keep her from blaming herself, offering something of a remedy to her emotional state. He will do the same for Fos when addressing the practical matter of what to do regarding her arms. There is no more of the shell, but rather than let her start to get it worked up about what to do, he will provide the next step of investigating the cord shore. I don't know if this is just for the convenience of story or what, but Congo not accompanying him will set up the eventual tragedy, and the Lunarians' efforts to waylay him suggest that things would have gone differently with him around. In that context, why does he let them go alone? Especially with a damaged and useless, I'm sorry, an especially useless Fos. Considering his actions and trying to support their mental state in that first scene, is it possible that he was letting them solve their own problems here? As in, if they find a way to set things right, then that also would be a way to help them shore up their inner distress? I'm not sure why they'd need to separate as a matter of course, especially during the daytime, unless Congo intentionally wants to let the gems fight their own battles as much as is possible. If so, this potentially informs some of our questions about his goal priorities. Then there is his interaction with the Lunarians at his doorstep. Previously, we've had them reaching through the windows while he meditates and bowing down to him in a dream, but this is the first time we've seen an actual interaction that wasn't him just vanishing them with a flick of his wrist. 
He doesn't seem surprised at all by their behavior, not the bowing down, not the longing as they reach toward him. I would sum up his reaction as mildly annoyed, and he intuits that they are there to delay him. It seems he is right, as his normal shtick of blowing them away springs what he will call a novel trap, holding him in place just a little bit longer. Even then, he still only seems mildly annoyed, declaring their efforts futile. So then, Fos. I wondered before if Fos losing more memories would affect her personality at all, and it seems like no. Which was rather relieving to me, as someone who has grown rather fond of our peppermint-colored friend. I tried to point out that the Fos we left at the end of last episode was someone retracting back into feeling inadequate. You know, if only she had arms to match those legs. Her initial enthusiasm over being able to help in the winter tasks had slowly cooled as each step exhausted her, or annoyed her, or actually broke her. I wondered how she would then react to the loss of her arms when she was already on this downward trend. However, the first time we get to see her, she seems more nervous about getting in trouble than anything else. There's no despondency or defeat. In fact, when our Arcticite tries to assume blame for the fiasco, Fos will first try to argue with her and claim the fault as her own. As our Antarcticite nevertheless continues, it'll be her that is all despondent and defeated. Fos does not fail to notice. The other two people in the room are trying to take responsibility, and so she's presumably off the hook, but she's not relieved. Instead, she has her own moment of introspection, perhaps seeing how the consequences of her recklessness can impact more than just her. And while it is at least a little bit of her putting on a brave face, Fos will play something of the optimist in the group, downplaying the matter so that Antarcticite won't take it so hard. It wasn't welcomed by Antarcticite, as we already discussed, but Fos seeing her in distress and trying in her own way to help out is one of Fos's more endearing and enduring qualities. It leads her to bite off more than she can chew, of course, wanting to help Cinnabar, wanting to help Ventricosis, but it's enough of a core part of Fos that a further loss of memories does not affect it. At a base level, she wants to help, but she is also inexperienced and easily overmatched, and the times she hasn't given up have led to poor outcomes. It should be notable that these failures haven't stopped her from wanting to contribute or assist people all the same. And unfortunately for Fos, this episode is another example of her desires not being enough by themselves. Before continuing that thought, though, I want to talk about an aspect of her new arms that may be related to her characterization. A roughly arm-shaped bit of gold was attached to her, and it seems like Antarcticite did so more out of curiosity than optimism, but her inclusions do not reject it. What interests me here is the inclusion's first order of business. As Fos says, they start to engulf her, surrounding her, and in due time will harden into a cubic cage with Fos inside. The arms aren't acting on Fos's conscious orders, they're acting of their own will. And what that will seems to want is to protect Fos. Not only do they solidify into a kind of portable panic room as their very first move, they will generate a sea of hands to try to cover her mouth so she can't give away her presence to the Lunarians. That is to say, they are defensive. This prompts an immediate question. What determines the will of the inclusions? Is it possible that they represent Fos's subconscious, what she instinctively wants to do? As we saw plainly in the encounter with Amethyst, Fos can be paralyzed with fear. It may be that she has a strong instinct for self-preservation, and the inclusion's actions are simply a manifestation of this. 
In that same line of thought, her legs at first responded poorly to her control, but they were good at running away. She couldn't choose the distance or speed exactly, but if the goal of these subconscious inclusions was to get Fos out of danger, then being able to cover distance in any direction is a reasonable first move. Fos had to struggle to eventually gain some control over them. She will equally have to struggle against her new arms to change them from stubbornly defensive and self-serving into something offensive, something that can try to go after Antarcticite. The obvious parallel here is that Fos must struggle against her original subconscious state if she wants to gain mastery of her life and direction. Idle Fos amid the grass is the inner Fos who wants to use her new legs to run or her new arms to hide. The slowly changing newer Fos must actively work to suppress these tendencies. But that work is far from over. As I said already, this episode has become another example of Fos trying hard, but without that effort turning into success. She fights against the arms to take control, and the way the gold leaves peel backward to unveil her strikes me as resembling a flower blooming, a new thing being born into the world. And it seems so promising at first, right? She is shielded from the arrows, she strikes out and beheads a Lunarian. Fos, defeating Lunarians by herself? Who would have thought? Now bent to her will, the gold will shore her up. It tries to wrap the parts of her that crack under the strain, and she is even able to close the gap, launching herself all the way up to the cloud platform. She seems so capable, even if she is shedding pieces of herself continuously. And yet, as she herself will think, her new arms are strong. She hasn't given up. She's found the courage to push beyond her limits. So why are they still getting away? Why is it still not enough? She will make one final desperate play, launching herself way out over the water and hurling her sword as far as she can throw. This is done with seemingly no regard for her self-preservation, for without Kongo showing up, she likely would have crashed into the water where the weight of gold would put her in immediate peril. And yet, one of our last images is of the sword she threw embedded in the ice. It fell short. Fos fell short. Her will has been stronger than her body ever since she has started to change. Even before she had Cinnabar as a purpose, she had high and unrealistic hopes for what she might be capable of. As we can tell from all the fragments splitting from her, she is not completely past having physical limitations, but I am sure Fos believed that gaining arms to match her legs would make things right in the world, if she could just have a body that was equal to who she wanted to be on the inside. So to not just come up short again, but to have the consequences be so dire, the most dire outcome we have seen for Fos must be quite the blow. If she was heading into discouragement last episode, I have to wonder how she will rebound from this enormous setback. In world building, let's start with what struck me as the biggest new information, the Accord Shore and the details of the gem's birth. Based on the prehistory story we got in episode 2, I was under the impression that the gems come up from the sea in a literal sense, especially combined with our opening credits imagery of Fos in the water in a fetal position. But it seemed incongruent all the same. Our three sapient races correspond to bones, flesh, and spirit, but they also correspond to land, sea, and air. So it would have made sense to me to have the gems born out of the earth rather than the sea, and that is surely how gemstones normally end up on the surface. Seeing that this is actually the case makes the whole thing a little bit neater for me. They come up from the seafloor in the sense of riding the upthrusts of geologic layers. Now that is a very long road, which makes me wonder, 
how many years has it been since humanity died out? Anyway, outside of it being their birthplace, the whole detail about most gem fragments not achieving personhood is rather interesting. Phos is sent there to look for suitable material to replace her arms, which means that gems which fail to become people are essentially spare parts. This is a fairly alien situation, and it won't do me any good to apply human ethics towards it, uh, but it does answer a nagging question about the way the world works. Since the gems need to be chipped at times, or potentially can't recover every single fragment when they are splintered apart, you would think that they would eventually be reduced in size, or develop permanent gaps in their body, right? Maybe over a human lifespan it wouldn't be so noticeable, but these guys live for thousands of years. Eventually there is going to be some missing fragments. Seeing now that there is some source for patching themselves up eliminates a nitpick that I might otherwise have had about the sustainability of this gem culture. Related to the Chord Shore, apparently the inclusions can inhabit and articulate gold instead of only gemstones. I suppose obsidian was already a clue that it wasn't confined strictly to minerals, but I'm left wondering if any inorganic substance is fair game now that metals are in play. I figured I would talk just a bit about the properties of gold as well, since they are relevant to how the episode plays out. Gold is one of the densest of all naturally occurring substances. It's twice as dense as silver. Fosa's golden arm would weigh more than six times as much as her original, thus all the problems the weight causes. Gold is also the most malleable of all metals and can be beaten incredibly thin. A gram of gold, which is less than half the size of this micro SD card, can be beaten into a sheet a meter square, which is roughly this much of my stage area. So these scenes where the gold is changing shape in dramatic ways are probably not meant to represent liquid gold, even if they look a lot like the liquid mercury that Cinnabar uses. Instead, this is likely solid gold that is stretching and retracting in an incredibly rapid way. That's why it isn't spilling haphazardly like Cinnabar's mercury. It's why the heel and the leg wraps appear to stay solid. It's why that elongated final step she took then shatters into pieces rather than melting away. Gold is also one of the least reactive elements. It's resistant to most acids, oxidation, and corrosion, which makes it valuable as an electrical insulator and a long-term investment for holding wealth. However, I might as well mention that one of the things that does dissolve gold is mercury, and was once the common way to do so. I can't imagine right now why we'd have some kind of showdown between Phos and Cinnabar, but know that Cinnabar would theoretically have the upper hand. Gold has a long history of cultural significance too, which I guess goes without saying, and I'll explore a little bit more of that in theme. However, I will mention that synthesizing gold from more mundane substances, like lead, was a long-term goal of alchemy, though sometimes this was more of a metaphor than an actual scientific pursuit. Certainly no one managed it. But eventually, with more modern technology, someone did synthesize gold from another substance through irradiation. And that source substance was also mercury. Moving away from what happened with our gems, I want to look again at the Lunarians. I think they must absolutely be able to tell what is happening on the island, or at the least they can tell where Kongu is and what he's doing. 
I had thought so before because of their timing in delivering Ventricosis directly to the gym's doorstep while Kongo was conveniently meditating. This time, they are ready to delay him at the precise moment they attack Antarcticite on the other side of the island, and they do so within moments of the sun peeking out. We already know there is some connection between them and Kongo, and maybe this connection provides them with information? Very little is spelled out, but I feel like we can infer at least a little bit here. Incidentally, I was a big fan of this high angle shot when the clouds start to part as a way to foreshadow the Lunarians attacking. Another thing relevant to the Lunarians attack was this introduction of these fish hooks with grenades, or whatever you want to call these things. Our speculation that Winter would see the Lunarians demonstrate even further new tricks has panned out, and this apparatus is half of the package. Much like the Jaws which ensnared Amethyst, there is a mechanical-like quality to this new Lunarian, and having what I guess is a chemically triggered explosion seems like a jump in sophistication compared to the arrows and spears that we've become used to. Dare I suggest we have something akin to technological development taking place here? Is there a further metaphor at work in the way their weaponry is escalating? I have another question too. These things seem made to explode, but they also seem to be made out of gems. We've seen other gems repurposed as weapons already, between the Heliodor arrowheads and the sapphire jaws, but in those cases the hardness of the gems to be used against other gems made sense. In this instance, the hardness doesn't seem to matter. But more confusing is that the explosions shatter the gems and rain their fragments in every direction. With the other weapons, the Lunarians seem to be risking some of their gem parts to gain more. If things went well, you went home with both the weapons and the new gem captives. But with the design of this Lunarian, they are coming into it expecting to lose parts of whatever red gem was repurposed to this end. There should be no expectation that they keep what they already had. I'm left wondering then about the truth of the Lunarian motivations. They already lost pieces of Heliodor and Sapphire, and that seemed counter to the idea that they want to hoard the gems for themselves. These grabby grenades seem to have lost gem fragments as part of their design, leaving me to wonder what is even the point to risk such a setup? Unless gathering up every scrap of gems isn't the actual goal. The other half of the new Lunarian attack strategy is whatever happened with Kongo. They are waiting outside his doorstep to waylay him, and he once again uses whatever strike it is he has that will discorporate them. But that seems to trigger some kind of trap, binding Kongo in place with what appears to be swirls of mist. Considering their cloud platforms are nevertheless solid enough to stand on, I have to guess it's the same kind of phenomena, but the scene as a whole is rather unclear, especially what about it constitutes a trap. I realize it's intentionally ambiguous, but I still wanted to note it because it's part of the advancement in these strategies. After all, this time it worked. There's a last bit too that may be nothing new, but we see Kongo apparently try to shoot something after the retreating Lunarians at the end. They vanish into the distance seemingly before anything happens, so I'm left wondering about the inclusion of that scene. Maybe it was to show Kongo also falling short as Fos has? And maybe also to let us know that he has arrived on the scene so that him catching Fos doesn't seem completely out of the blue? If it is the normal gem meteor looking strike that we normally see, then at least this tells us that it has some kind of limitations. In theme, I want to start with one that I mentioned last time may not show back up because it was more visual symbolism than thematic argument, and that is snow means death. 
As I said, the death in this trope is not necessarily dying, but the ending of something, the overturning of the status quo. With the way we concluded last episode, it seemed plain that the status quo for Phos would be disrupted, but since Cinnabar was the other person in that scene, I wondered if it might extend to her as well. At this point, we have no idea if it means anything for her or not. However, our one gem, who is perhaps the most snow-like, has now suffered something rather akin to actual death. Quite apart from how it affects Antarcticite, Phos has now been a party to some gem's death, and has at least some cause to feel responsible for it. It's possible some of her own innocence or naivete has died now as well. Along those same lines, Journey Without Distance. The Winterlands chapter of Phos's journey appears to be over, and the new character who came onto the stage for it is now quite a bit off stage. So that pattern continues, as does the pattern of Phos changing in some way in each new land that she experiences. Taking these two episodes as a whole then, we have a tiny arc. Phos is troubled over a failure in her willpower and what it means toward achieving her goals. She wants to push herself beyond what she has managed in the past. In some ways, she succeeds, triumphing over her own tendency to give up when faced with setbacks. But it becomes clear that a triumph of will is not enough by itself, and this leads to a subconscious desire to change more of herself to be powerful like her legs. The end result is that she does change in this way, but it fails to solve all of the problems in front of her. Indeed, the ultimate outcome is a situation far worse than a Phos who cannot quite do the things that other gems can do. The journey is clearly not over, but one may wonder if Phos has any confidence in its direction at this point in time. Metamorphosis basically writes itself this episode, and I don't want to completely rehash all the things I've already said about Phos's most recent change. Uh, what I do want to point out is that in the last video I spoke of how Phos as she was, both physically and mentally, was not enough to solve Cinnabar's problem, and perhaps anyone's problem. A newer, different Phos was required, and that both pushed her to stay awake and to dream of the upgraded arms. She is one step further on this path, but for the first time there is dire consequence in her pursuit of change. So far she has not expressed any regret over her ongoing metamorphosis, but if such a time should come, is it a path that she even can step off of at this point? A caterpillar cannot pause halfway on the journey to a butterfly, after all. I struggle to imagine Phos going back to who she was before our story began, but for the first time, I wouldn't be surprised if she starts to consider it. Finally, our Buddhist lens. This will continue me laying out a few possibilities for the overall story, in addition to specifics in this episode. So let's start with the specifics first. Phos's new arms are surprisingly made of gold. Gold bears symbolic meaning in cultures all over the world, and Buddhism is no exception. It again will depend on the specific tradition, but gold is associated with the sun, or fire, and suggests purity. It's possibly intentional, then, that Phos's new golden appendages seem to wake up when the sun comes out. Since gold signifies purity, it is not mixed with other materials or colors in Buddhist art, as these would make it impure. Thus the proliferation of golden Buddhist statues, thus important symbols like the eight-spoked wheel of the Dharma Chakra being rendered in golden hues, thus the auspicious nature of a golden lotus, and so on. The golden lotus, by the way, can be used to symbolize enlightenment, and the Buddha emerging from an opening lotus flower is a common motif. 
that should probably remind you of a certain scene. Gold also shows up as one of the seven treasures, or seven jewels. These are both literal precious metals and gems, and seven spiritual treasures, if you will. Which exact seven materials seems to vary depending on the tradition or country, but gold, silver, and either lapis lazuli slash aquamarine slash blue barrel show up in all of them. Beyond that, options include coral, amber, crystal, ruby, emerald, diamond, carnelian, pearl, and agate, the thing that Fos's legs are made out of. By some lists, then, she is already composed of two of the seven jewels. Should she continue to add more material to herself beyond these two, then we might expect her to end up with five of the others on this list, of which something silvery and something blue like lapis lazuli, aquamarine, or blue barrel would be the most sure bets, then something red and something clear or white, with several options depending on which tradition you consult. But of course, it's not just about the physical ways Fos would be changing when looking at this seven jewels possibility. They correspond to seven qualities or practices that are desirable to Buddhists. These also depend on the translation, but essentially there is devotion, generosity, morality, mindfulness, respect for self, respect for others, and wisdom. I confess this is a lucky circumstance. Last time I introduced that notion of journey without distance, that Fos was going through tiny character iterations that matched up with her involvement with one or two new gems at a time. I also first introduced the idea of looking at this thing through a Buddhist lens. I did not want to explicitly tie these two concepts together until a later episode, but now that gold has appeared on the scene, it seems more likely the connection is intentional and the timing is therefore rather perfect. In other words, Fos's character journey may more or less map to the acquisition of the Seven Jewels, both physically and as a person. I said last time that, starting out, Fos was basically the anti-Buddhist, but each episode has seen her shift in her tendencies and priorities. Kongo's various tasks and involvement in her story could thus be seen as guiding her down this path. After all, he starts her out with the encyclopedia task, which one could equate to a pursuit of wisdom. Likewise with trying to get her to still her heart in presence of the ice flows. Likewise with having her be involved with the winter tasks or allowing her to join the scouting mission. We may be able to look back at some point and judge each one of Kongo's interactions with Fos as an attempt to foster these qualities within her. Now as near as I can tell, each literal jewel does not correspond exactly to a certain quality. That is, we can't look at gold and agate and therefore conclude that it means Fos has also acquired two specific qualities. She seems to be struggling with respect for self at this particular point in time, but we have seen devotion towards her self-imposed goal of saving Cinnabar. She also displayed a certain generosity in the sequence with Ventricosis, though perhaps little wisdom. Having Fos eventually become more and more of an embodiment of these seven jewels, both meanings, seems like a very plausible path for the series right now. In What to Watch For, only one of the things I was expecting has happened, which was seeing how Antarcticite reacted to the Lost Arms. I don't think we need to reiterate here, as it forms the core part of her section in characterization, but at least the assumption that she would aid Fos rather than ignore or blame Fos has panned out. 
Unfortunately, so did the fear that she would assume undue responsibility over what happened, which may have contributed to the outcome. The truth or untruth of the things the ice flows whispered about Cinnabar have yet to be determined, but they were at least right about Fos becoming stronger with the replacement of her arms. They just neglected to mention the cost. Relatedly, one of the new things I want to watch for is exactly how Fos handles her new appendages. She struggled to move under their weight and shed lots of pieces of her original self in the, her uh, determination to stop the Lunarians. It may be that the gold which broke off from under her feet in that last desperate throw will now no longer be part of her body, and she might be unburdened enough to move and fight normally. That is, if she even wants to. The main two things I really want to see next time is how Fos internalizes losing Antarcticite, and how Jim's society as a whole usually reacts to the loss of one of their own. Because I have this sinking suspicion that these will be two different reactions. We also are still watching to see what else Fos may have forgotten with the loss of the arms. I don't think losing some details of her birth or the island's layout are all that significant, so I am still assuming that there will be a narrative consequence to these lost memories. Last of all, speculation. Now, due to the way we leave off, it's difficult to guess much about the future. Uh, this episode had a rather final quality to it, and so the things we speculated about before winter are almost all still the same. Um, I will say that due to this same finality, if they wanted to jump off a larger arc to close the season out, then the next episode would be the right point to set it up. Depending on various reactions, the loss of Antarcticite and gaining the Golden Arms could constitute an act to break for our story, leading us into the final act. If there is any merit in comparing Fos leaving her box to emerging from within a Golden Lotus, then a longer arc to put to this new being through her paces would make a lot of sense. Either way, I think we will probably skip right to the other gems waking up, as there is a lot of merit in letting those last moments of Fos and Congo hang a bit in the air as our final impression of winter. I expect Fos to have some difficulty being around the others at first, though I honestly don't know how they will take the loss of Antarcticite. I feel like there is a certain laissez-faire tendencies among the gems with regards to their own lives, perhaps even a kind of nihilistic resignation. It's a rather common way to characterize immortals, who would otherwise be burdened by the accumulated sorrows of centuries. Other than that, the stuff I said about Fos and the Seven Jewels suggesting a path forward are about the only things I can guess at right now. We have something of a fresh start for potential conflicts next time, so perhaps an episode that is mostly introspection will make sense before we spin up another narrative crisis. I am so very curious about how they will close the last third of this season out and how Fos will make sense of her place in their society. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.